we are talking about weakness. And last week we looked at a fascinating passage in Galatians chapter 4 that showed us what it means to depend on God in weakness by grace through faith in Christ. And as I promised last week, this week we're going to talk about what it looks like to serve in weakness now that we're depending on God. And like we talked about last week, if you were here and remember, uh, we're, we're, we're posing these messages as a kind of discussion for us as American Christians at a time in history when we're realizing, though we've seen this coming for a long time, that we're no longer the moral majority in culture. Uh, we probably never were, uh, but for the longest time in my lifetime, I just kind of felt like people around were Christians. At least they said they were when I talked to them. And that's changing. Instead, we are what we're calling, uh, we are the prophetic minority. And what, what that means simply is that we're leaving a time of cultural Christianity where everybody thought they were Christian because they thought they were good people, and we're entering instead a time when those who follow Christ will have to show the majority what God is like. And I'm suggesting in these two messages, and we'll keep on suggesting this as we talk, that this is actually a good thing. That as, as we go into the minority, so to speak, we're going to have opportunities to, to, to talk about the gospel with people who really have no idea what the gospel is about. And the gospel will stand out in sharp relief in a way that it never did when people around us thought they were believers. It, it really is a very exciting time in, in history to be a Christian. And I really do believe that. Uh, this morning I want to take us to two passages. You know, there's violence in choosing these passages. Once you start reading the Bible from the vantage point of those who must depend on God in weakness, you get all sorts of passages to choose from to make certain points. And today is one of those, uh, one of those weeks. But after long deliberation, uh, we've got two passages. The first is in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4. So I'd encourage you to find that passage. And then the second one is 1 Peter chapter 2, also beginning in, uh, actually beginning in verse 9. So what you might want to do is kind of slip a piece of paper into 1 Peter and then find Jeremiah, middle of the Bible. You'll probably land in Isaiah. Go right. You'll end up in the big book of Jeremiah. And we'll, we'll work through Jeremiah and eventually make our connection over to 1 Peter. One passage is Old Testament. One passage is New Testament. And I think you'll see that they have a relationship uh, to one uh, another. Our passage in Jeremiah is asking the question, how should Israel serve during a time of particular weakness in the history of the nation? And, and it, it's about preservation 
of the nation. I'll give you the history of the passage really quickly because we're dropping right into the middle of Jeremiah. Uh, Much of the history is given in chapters 27 and 28, just before chapter 29. Uh, But uh, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, the nasty king of Babylon, uh, took possession of his kingdom, Babylon, in 605 B.C., And it was during that same year that Nebuchadnezzar came down and oppressed Israel and deposed the not very good uh, king of Israel, King Jehoiakim, and put Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, in place as Israel's king and forced Jehoiakim to pay tribute to him. And that went on for a couple of years. Until in 597, so a few years later, Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon, which was generally not a good thing to do. And he was carted off along with the rest of Israel's nobility, along with the, with the implements of worship from Solomon's temple. Basically, they carted off everything that they wanted from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. In chapter 29 of Jeremiah, uh, we have uh, Jeremiah, actually a few chapters before this. Um, Jeremiah does something that we would consider to be unusual, but it wasn't terribly unusual among the prophets of Israel. He made a visual aid. He actually got a big wooden yoke, and he put this yoker on his shoulders, and he walked around telling people that God was saying that they were, sub- they were to submit in weakness to the Babylonian yoke. And this really wasn't a very popular message. Uh, in, in fact, there was another prophet. His name was Hananiah, and he is in chapters 27 and 28, who somehow or another, I don't know if he took it from him in a struggle or what, but he got a hold of this yoke and he smashed it also as a visual aid. And he told Israel, you know, thus saith the Lord, he's actually a false prophet, but thus saith the Lord, uh, this is going to be a light and easy uh, occupation. In other words, in two years, everybody's coming back from Babylon. And, and I think what he really wanted people to do was to show strength, rebel against Babylon. If you'll do that, God is on our side. Everybody's coming back, and this whole thing with Babylon is going to be over. And at first, Jeremiah says, Amen. That was a great-sounding message that Hananiah had. But then God spoke to Jeremiah. And after God spoke to Jeremiah, he writes a letter to Jehoiakim, who's in captivity in Babylon. And that's the contents of our passage. So let me read this for us. Jeremiah 29, uh, beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read down through... Uh, actually through verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will rescue your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All right, the main idea of this passage, if we can wordsmith it a little bit. uh, Israel's proper service in her time of captivity included two things. Number one, flourishing in her various calling uh, callings. And number two, embracing God's plan for her temporary weakness. Israel was to flourish in her captivity in Babylon. I counted 11 things uh, that they were to do. They were to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their Produce. They were to take wives for their sons and daughters. They were to take wives for the sons of their sons and daughters. Uh, and and they, were to, they were to continue to marry. And then, very important, uh, they were not to decrease. In other words, God was telling them, in whatever capacity you're in, be it, be it in, uh, in your work or in your family, you are to flourish. And and you're going to be there a while. Settle in. Don't sit there with your bags packed waiting to come home. It's not going to happen right away. You need to flourish. And our minds here really need to go back to Genesis 12 too. Remember God talked to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Remember what he said? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God is telling Israel, even though you're in captivity, you are to fulfill the Abrahamic blessing. You are to to flourish. Verse 7 is absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, Here they're called to serve the strong, even oppressive, Majority culture. Look at verse 7 again. Seek the welfare. The word is actually shalom. We usually translate it peace. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its shalom you will find your shalom. Shalom, material, spiritual, and relational well-being. They're even to seek the shalom of the people who are oppressing them because God has put them there. They're to contribute to the success of their oppressors. God says in your work and your relationships, contribute something of value because I 
sent you there. Very fascinating little passage, isn't it? Uh, and again, our minds should go to Genesis 12, 3 this time. God talking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, the Babylonians are going to host you for a while, and you're going to depend on them for a while. And even though they don't know it, their well-being depends on how they treat you. All right? Second thing they're to do, Israel was to embrace God's plan for her temporary weakness. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. and really see it all the way down through verse 14. Don't listen to those who want to show strength right now. That's a deceptive message. Your place right now is to serve in weakness. And then you have this beautiful uh, paragraph here, 10 through 14, pretty well known. After that time of weakness, I'll visit you. I'll fulfill to you my promise. I'll bring you back to the land. I'll give you a future and a hope. You'll call on my name. You'll come and pray to me. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found. I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. All right, so Israel is to serve in her time of weakness. All right, that's our Old Testament passage, and it's instructive, but, but we can't just lift it up and drop it in our times. Uh, Israel and the church are not exactly the same. All right, so we, we need to ask ourselves here, how are we like and unlike the nation of Israel in Jeremiah? And I, I sat down and looked at this passage and actually made a list of some ways that we are not, and then ways that we are like Israel in the Old Testament, particularly in Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, Israel was a geopolitical nation-state uh, united by a flag. Maybe they had a flag, but you get the idea. They were a nation-state. The church today, and I'm not just talking about Faith Bible Church, but followers of Jesus worldwide, the church is an international assembly united by faith in Christ. Not quite the same as Israel, right? Israel was rooted in a particular race. The church is taken from all races. Israel was waiting to be restored to the land of promise. The church is waiting for the renewed heavens and earth, which include the land of promise. Israel was being punished for her disobedience. Those in the church have already been put to death in Christ, and now we're alive and we're free. Big difference. Israel was anticipating Christ. The church lives in Christ. Israel was waiting for renewed hearts. The church is made up of those with renewed hearts by the Holy Spirit. Israel was to be gathered from all nations. The church has been sent to all nations. Big difference. Israel was waiting for Christ's first coming in weakness. The church is waiting for Christ's second coming in power. So there's not exactly a a one-to-one correspondence between us as the church and this passage, as helpful as the passage is. But how are we like Israel in Jeremiah? 
we're like Israel in one very important way. As we think about ourselves uh, as people who are uh, in the minority now, the prophetic minority, all right? Both the church and Israel are in captivity, at least culturally. Uh, Both are placed by God in a position of temporary weakness. And and that's what I like about this passage. You know, when you're in 1 Kings 8 and 9 and Solomon is, you know, at his height and Israel is, is powerful and they've just built the temple and people or other nations are bowing down to them. It's hard for me to, to find how that relates to me. But this passage is really instructive because Israel is weak and dependent on God here. I think one of the, way, one of the reasons this is hard for us, this whole idea of dependency on God and weakness is that we all in this room have lived in a very exceptional time when when to be a christian was you know something to be well some it meant you were strong culturally uh this has not always been the way it's been uh, church historians tell us that maybe the worst thing that ever happened to the church was when in 313 constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And overnight, we went from a marginalized people to being people who were in control. And what that eventually looked like in church history was that armies would go into places and Christianize whole civilizations instead of evangelizing them. Is a huge difference. Now you've got vast parts of the world with people who think they're Christians, though they don't know Jesus Christ. That's I, that I think is why we're having trouble with this, and we're now living in a kind of a hinge of history, where it, at least in America and the West, things are going back to the way they were in the first century. And that's why it's so important to think about this idea of weakness. Let's turn to our second passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is a passage where Peter is addressing the church, though he uses some of this kingdom language that we're familiar with from the Old Testament. The first thing we have to realize here is that when Jeremiah talked about Israel in Jeremiah, he, he was using language of preservation. God was going to preserve his chosen people, we know, until the coming of Christ. When Peter talks to us, the church here, in his epistle, he uses language of proclamation. In other words, God isn't just preserving us from harm. He's telling us to go out and proclaim the gospel. 1 Peter 2, I'll read 9 down through verse 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I didn't give you much help in the bulletin insert this week, uh, but the, the main idea of this passage, which is really the main idea of the message, is this, and you may want to write it down. I'll actually read it twice so you can get it. And remember, we're talking to each other as American Christians, but this is true of Christians worldwide. The American church's proper service in cultural captivity includes proclaiming the excellence of the excellencies of God and pursuing fellow worshipers. I'll read it again. The American church's proper service in cultural captivity includes proclaiming the excellencies of God and pursuing fellow worshipers. Right. We serve God in proclaiming his excellencies. Notice how, how Peter uses the royal language here, taken from God's covenant people, Israel, to describe how God chose us for a purpose. What is that purpose? To tell everybody how great God is, or, or a favorite phrase of mine, to make much of Jesus. We're to make much of Jesus in culture as we talk to people who culturally now will be stronger than us. And I don't think we leave our callings behind here. Right? Remember, our callings are the ways that, that we add value to culture in our, in our work and our, our families and in society. We, we don't leave those behind. In fact, we're to make much of Jesus while we serve. The reason I don't think we leave our callings behind is... Let your eyes run down the rest of 1 Peter 2 and see where Peter goes with this. Uh, Christian citizens, be subject to the emperor. He doesn't say overthrow the emperor. He's a bad guy. While he's in charge during this temporary time, be subject to him. Be weak. Christian servants, honor your masters. Honor the, the, the stronger position they have than you. Christian wives, win your husbands over with gentleness. Use your weakness to persuade. Christian husbands, show understanding to your wives. You're in a natural position of strength, but don't use it to exploit them. Be, be, Be weak. Be understanding with your wives. We also shouldn't lose here how, how weird this message would have been in the ancient world. Right? It's, it, it, was, it was weird to show weakness then, just as it's increasingly weird in our world to show weakness. Uh, this is also not about being just nice people, but it's about giving the reason for our hope up front. 
Russell Moore, the author of Onward, that we're going to be looking at with college students, says this, The future of Christian social witness cannot assume the gospel, but must articulate it explicitly and coherently, not simply as the tagline at the end of our activism, but as the ground and underpinning of it. In other words, in the past you might have been able to get to know a person for five or six years and eventually sit down and share the gospel with them. Anymore, we we need to be up front with people uh, about our hope and not assume that they've ever heard of Christ in a meaningful way before. And, And this is something that we need to do as a community, as a church family. And, and to be real honest, I'm, I'm just learning how to do this. Uh, I've been a soccer coach now for two years, a football manager, I like to say. Uh, it began, my career as a soccer coach, uh, began uh, two years ago when our real coach of our first and second grade team uh, didn't turn up for the first game. And we never heard from him again. We never heard what happened. He just, was just gone, vanished. And so I walked out on the field and said, okay, boys, circle up. we got a game today. And I became the coach. Uh, don't know the rules. Don't really even like soccer. But doesn't hold me back at that level. Um, since then, I have officially assumed command of the team. And um, I, I did this in an interesting way. I sent out an email to the parents. And I basically said, I don't like soccer. That's, don't try that always. But... Uh, I said, you know what, um, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I work at Faith Bible Church. At Faith Bible Church, we care about kids, and we care about families. And what I want you to know is that this isn't really about soccer, it's, it's, about, it's about serving your kids. And without using the word, I want to pastor your kids. They're the most important thing here. Um, it didn't go the whole way. You know, if I do it again in the spring, I need to get more explicit about my hope in Christ and the gospel. It's going to hurt some people's feelings. That's okay. You can ask me how it is going. But, you know, the, the, the demeanor of the team changed once they began to sense that there was more to this than just a, a Saturday morning game. It was, for me... It's one of the only ways I'm not involved at Faith Bible Church, so I enjoy it. But uh, for me, it was an interesting experiment in culture in a place where families don't talk about Christ, don't know about Christ. And I would suggest that in your family, you have some foray into culture like that as well. And we need to talk as a church family about what it looks like to help each other be up front with the gospel. That's an ongoing conversation. Uh, let's finish the passage, though. Uh, we're to proclaim the excellencies of God among our neighbors. We're, we're also to serve God in pursuing future worshipers, interesting, from among the culturally strong, from among what Peter calls the Gentiles. Uh, I, I get this from verse 12. And, and we got to realize as we read this that sometimes we're going to get hated for this. Let, let me just read verse 12 again, and I want you to ask yourself, what's the question here? Because I've got a question about this verse. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's your question here? My question is, why would they speak against us as evildoers? You know, coming from a traditionally traditional moral majority Christian vantage point, I don't understand this. Why? I'm doing a good thing. Well, they don't think so, necessarily. Christians in the ancient world were distrusted because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord and throw a piece of meat to an idol, right? Especially under Nero, which is where these people were. They didn't play by the rules, so they couldn't be controlled. In fact, Christians were actually called atheists because they were against the gods. Interesting how that word has changed. Uh, How did the Christians respond in the first century to being marginalized? Well, among other things, they, they began gathering up unwanted children from the trash heaps. And they began caring for widows. And the faith spread. You know, Christians today are increasingly, we, are increasingly typecast by a kind of group think. It's not always what individuals think, but there's a kind of group think out there. I'll give you an example. Uh, This summer there was a study conducted by one of our major universities in which children from six different countries, big countries, U.S., China, places like that, were uh, gathered up and they were given stickers. And they were told that they could keep as many stickers as they wanted, but if they would donate some of their stickers, those donated stickers would go to other children. So they, and they put a time crunch on this and some, you know, and they took a tally who gave what away. And then they asked the children one question, are your parents religious? And then they did all the calculations and figured out that the children of non-religious parents were more generous than the children of religious parents. Now, the difference was less than one sticker per child, a a marginal difference, and the religious families were Muslim, Hindu, everything. Okay, So very broad controls. And then earlier this month in November, in Current Biology, it's an academic magazine, they published this result. Children of religious parents were less likely to share their stickers than children of non-religious than parents, children of non-religious parents. Okay? Pretty plain vanilla. It took just a couple of days for magazines all over the, over the world to jump on this study. And here are some of the headlines that were published in major magazines from the Mirror magazine. Children of atheists are kinder and more tolerant. Forbes magazine. Religion makes children more selfish, scientists say. Uh, the Economist. Pretty good magazine. Far from bolstering generosity, a religious upbringing diminishes it. Uh, The Guardian. Religious children are meaner than their secular counterparts. There you go. And then my favorite from the Daily Beast, religious kids are jerks. Right? So we think we're doing something good here. We are on Sunday mornings. But do you see how the group think works? This is how the group begins to think. Uh, The good news here 
and this, this is where the passage goes, is that individuals don't always think what the group thinks. And at the end of our passage, we see that many from among the culturally strong, all right, those who don't yet know Christ, are going to join us in praising God at the coming of Jesus. They're, they're going to hear the gospel, all right? Uh, in fact, I'll read it. They may, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They're going to hear the gospel, and they're going to, they're going to watch Christians serve in weakness, and they're going to start to do the moral math, you know? And then the Holy Spirit comes and hearts are changed. And at the end, on the day of visitation, which also can be translated census, that's interesting, when Jesus comes back, they're going to be there praising God with us. And, and, and I think that, you know, it might work out something like this, just to take a hypothetical scenario here about how this works out. You know, groupthink says Christians are radical or extreme, which is kind of what the study said, right? So they won't be allowed to do certain things. Let's just take, for an example, foster children or adopt. Could see it happening. But here's the problem. There's more children than there are people to adopt them, they say. And if we marginalize the Christians, who's going to staff the hospitals? Who's going to care for the elderly? Who's going to do those things that the first century Christians did in the first century when the church began to grow so fast? And and again, certain individuals begin to figure this out. And they come and they begin to worship God. And this only takes place in weakness. And we've got to start thinking about how to serve God as a moral minority. So our question as we leave today, where has God called you to serve him in weakness? There's a lot of kids here today. Kids, you know, in your schools, if you go to school, there are, there are kids from other countries there, right? I mean, they join you middle of the year and they don't speak English or they're learning English. Are you their friend? Do you sit down with them and talk with them at recess or, or, or lunch? Uh, it's really the same question for us as adults. You know, we care about immigrant ministry here at Faith Bible Church. Pastor Soko's got all kinds of ways that, that you could reach, reach, reach out in love to our immigrant neighbors. Same thing with the English ministry. So no shortage of possibilities to serve the weak in weakness. Got one more thing to show you, then we're done. Um, don't need to turn there. But there's just a, a, a fascinating little picture in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, you know, some of this is kind of grim. This is hard to take in for us. But we need to realize, as we begin to function as a prophetic minority, that we're only in a relative prophetic minority among people who are on the earth at this time. There is a reality that we can't always see. This passage from 2 Kings is the passage where the the title for the movie Chariots of Fire 
comes from. Remember Eric Liddell, a, a moral minority of one, says, I'm not going to run on Sunday, even in the Olympics. That was what he believed. He didn't, and we're still talking about him today. He saw something beyond what was right in front of him. He saw a reality that was through the veil that encouraged him and made it worth it to stand up as a moral minority of one. And he re- what he really realized was that he was not a minority. Uh, the passage in 2 Kings 6 takes place when the armies of Israel are surrounded by the Syrians and Elisha, the prophet Elisha, and his servant are there surrounded. All right? I'll just read verse 15, 16, 17. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. That's the Syrians. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he, that's Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, an angel army that stood and supported him, not to mention the great witnesses of those who have gone on before us. So we are only a relative uh, uh, prophetic minority, and we are... No matter what anybody says about us being on the wrong side of history, we're on the right side of eternity. Amen? It's true. Um, Let me pray for us. We've run a little over time. Thank you for your patience. We'll pray for us. And um, actually, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to let Brian figure it out. They're going to come out and we'll sing probably again. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in history though it kind of scrambles our minds and takes some energy to get our minds around where we are in history, um, we know that you are helping us. And would you give us great wisdom and give us courage as we speak your gospel? Help us to to show great compassion and gentleness and, uh, and, and not try to be strong where you've asked us to be weak in Christ. We thank you for the encouragement that you give us in him, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.